welcome to Greater Than Code, episode 188. I'm John Sowers, and I'm here with my friend, Rain Henricks. Hey, John. That is a large number of episodes. I am here with our guest, and I'm very excited to introduce him. Damien Burke started working on internet startups in 1999 and never stopped. He has been an engineer, founder, CTO, and product manager. Outside of tech, Damien is certified in ontological coaching, hypnosis, and neurolinguistic programming. He spent several years as a professional poker player and has performed as an actor in theater, commercials, network television, and film. Damien is the co-creator of Early Words, a tool to support people on their creative recovery, and is the creator of Never Bust, the bankroll manager for professional poker players. He offers coaching and consulting for software startups at Tolaria Software. Hi, Damien. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Rain. Thank you, John. Uh, thanks for having me. So you know what's coming. Uh, our first question is, uh, what is your superpower and how did you acquire it? So such an anxiety-inducing question. I'm going to answer it anyway without going on and on about all that anxiety. Uh, my superpower is an ability to hold conflicting beliefs at the same time. Interesting. Cool. I like that one. I would agree that that is important because that way you can get the best out of each of them. I would both agree and disagree. <laughs> I knew you would say that. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's too easy. <laughs> so, so how does that play what out we, in your uh, life? It's largely a way of engaging with a lot of different mindsets, you know, on a lot of different levels, uh, being able to see things and operate things as if they're real and if they're not real, being able to deal with and make good use of, you know, so taking a really extreme example, witchcraft, the, the law of attraction, that sort of thing, and then also be able to deal with Cartesian duality, uh, science as the phrase is used, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting to me that it took Western philosophy a very long time to figure this out when Eastern philosophy, like the Jainists, figured this out a long time ago. So there's a Jainist principle called Anakantavada, which is the multifariousness of perception. Like the elephant and the blind man story, that's a Jainist parable. And, and it seems like so antithetical to, to the basis of Western philosophy, going back to, to Plato, to Descartes, to Socrates, that sort of getting to the singular truth. Yeah. I mean, we spent, you know, millennia recovering from Aristotle and then centuries recovering from Descartes. So it's not surprising. <laughs> That's great. I love that trend you're recovering from. I mean, it wasn't until like the postmodernist where you really got this, you know, all points of view you know, are valid and, you know, they can disagree without being invalidated sort of a thing going on. Which then again, really only, in my experience, only exists in artistic analysis. Uh, it's not something you'll find in your software team or in your public policy, people working in that, that sort of area. Yeah. Sidney Decker likes to talk about how the world is sort of dominated by this Newtonian Cartesian worldview and that it's embedded in the, the language we use and the way we learn and all this stuff. And so we're really acculturated to think in these ways. Yeah, to the point where any thoughts that violate that are outright dismissed and considered invalid. Mm -hmm. The law of the excluded middles is one of my favorites. It's like, can something be true? It's either true or not true. I mean, no. <laughs> See, I'm a constructivist, so I just throw that one out entirely. <laughs> and one of the things you wanted to talk about that I thought was really interesting was how we make 
things easy? You know, life is hard. How do we make things easy? Can you maybe expand a bit on on what you mean by that? Well, I, I wrote that in the, in the email to you. Life is hard. We should make things easy. Yeah, it's kind of a grounding philosophy for me. It's the reason why I built software. Nothing that software does can't be done without software. Nothing that software does can't be done without computers. Our goal is to make it easy. And, you know, and, and of course, and it's a fractal principle. It goes into the actual, the way I build software or the way I advise people to build software. Sometimes not the way I do it. Um, looking for like, how can you do this in such a way that is simple and easy and easy to deal with and makes life easy for you? It was really Sandy Metz who opened my eyes to this in, in a really significant way. I was lucky enough to take one of her workshops and she walks you very slowly through uh, a couple refactoring exercises. It goes very slowly. And she points out, like, see, we did this. We can do this without thinking. It's like, yeah. So why don't you do it this way? Because you like being clever. <laughs> but there, there are more important things to be clever about than your method extraction refactoring. <laughs> Let's be clever about the important things. Life is hard. There's another idea that I think is related that I want to bounce off of you and see what you think. So Herbert Simon, who was a Nobel laureate economist, has this parable that's called Simon's Ant now. And it is, if you look at an ant in the rainforest and you look at the path it makes as it sort of traverses the canopy floor and, you know, goes over this log and then around this, you know, and so on. If you look at geometrically at the path the ant makes, that path is very complex. But ants are very simple creatures, it seems. So where does the complexity come from? The phrase there is uh, emergent behavior. That mm. complex things can arise from simple rules. Uh, Conway's Game of Life is the canonical example of this. Yeah, and then the question is, well, how do we use that, that knowledge, that information? I would agree with emergent behavior, but I would also add something else, which is the complexity comes from the combination of the ant in its environment. Yeah, so yeah. Herbert Simon's idea was if you want to understand the ant's mind, you can just ignore all that other stuff as being external and just focus on the ant. And then John Hogland came around and said, you know what, actually, if you want to understand the ant's mind, you have to include its environment. You can't just throw the environment out because the ant would behave differently in different environments. Which, again, is the opposite of Plato's uh, brain in the box. Yeah. Yeah, so you get embodied cognition. You get the idea that you have to think of the mind as being more than just the brain. Yeah, that is definitely a, a huge and incredibly viable insight. Like, and this is something that I learned as a hypnotist, uh, which is that cognition happens in the whole body. You cannot be angry and taking slow, deep breaths. It's literally not possible. The way I would relate this back to how do you make things easy is People want to find the easy path through their environment that resolves their goals and trade-offs, right? And so if you have the opportunity to design that environment to make certain things easy, that's a great way to influence behavior. Like to get the behavior you want, either you can punish people for doing the wrong thing or you can make the right thing easy. And then, you know, to get to a very practical sense on that, uh, things like an editor that formats your code with, Spaces instead of tabs. <laughs> that auto sit. I, I had to do this with a, with a coworker with a uh, coworker once. He kept putting spaces at the end of lines, and it drove me nuts. 
I was like, I can't do this. I can't live with this. And then I said, wait a minute. I can fix my editor so that when it saves a file, <laughs> it deletes the spaces at the end of the line. That's a really minor concern, <laughs> but it was a concern, and it was a way to make, you know, complying with what I thought the right way to format code <laughs> made it easy as opposed to trying to change behavior and do the difficult thing of, of getting him to concern, be concerned and think about things that I think are important. Yeah, clearing that path through the environment such that that's the easy route is underappreciated, I think. Yeah, it's very difficult to make things easy, too. But yeah, to it's a lot of work. I think that a big part of this is cognitive systems engineering, figuring out how people interact with their environments so that you can design the cognitive environment. That is a fact. I've never heard that phrase before. Cognitive systems engineering. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Oh, you're going to love this one because if you're anti-Cartesian bent, you're going to love joint cognitive systems. So joint Ooh. cognitive systems comes from this idea that the systems that humans interact with are joint systems, which means that they don't follow the sort of Shannon communication theory of I do a thing, you respond, I respond, you respond. In fact, these systems are, are all communicating all the time. So even to your point about editors, editors are becoming joint systems. They're not, I save a file, it compiles. It's now, I start typing. I get a squiggly that says that there's a syntax error. That's a joint system. That's different parts of the system presenting information all the time, not waiting for responses. So now we're expanding cognition, not just out of the brain, out of the nervous system, but we're expanding it into uh, the environment. Cognition happens in the environment. I like and it. So that squiggly line that shows that you have a syntax error, it changes how you think as you write code. Mm-hmm. And th- this actually really connects to something something I, I discovered last year, I already mentioned uh, last week. The greatest chess player in the world is not a computer. The greatest chess player in the world is not a human. It's a human computer team. Right. I remember that. So another thing I think you're going to love is that chess players are very good at making chess decisions, right? You give them a chess board and they can figure stuff out very quickly. They are average at making other decisions. They aren't just good decision makers. They're good at chess decisions. And in fact, if you give them a randomly scrambled board, they take as long to recognize it as someone who's never seen chess before. Because they're recognizing patterns in chess. They're not just sort of good at decision-making in some abstract way. Yeah, it's fascinating the chunking that, that chess players learn. Like, uh, you know, they, they can memorize a board at a, at a glance, but like you said, a randomly, randomly arranged board they'll have no clue about. And it's because of recognition, I think. There's no, you know, when you see a board that looks like a board you've seen before a hundred times, you recognize it. When you see a randomly scrambled board, there's no recognition. Yeah, you probably also didn't follow the process of, of getting it there. Like, if, if you had been watching how it got scrambled, you'd know a lot more about it, and you could probably then unscramble it or figure out where you're going from there. This opens some really good um, strategic ideas, which are difficult to do on a very high level in chess, but if you can just give somebody a situation they're unfamiliar with, they will make very poor decisions, even if they're an expert in the domain. Yeah, or even if they're an expert in a different domain. Like, you can take an expert in one thing, move them to a different domain, and they'll make decisions of the quality of an average person. It's interesting what sort of... Some things transfer, but this idea that like you can learn to be a better decision-maker in general hasn't really borne fruit. 
Yeah, this is tied up with some things I've been reading recently about like treating expertise as transferable to different fields, where it's like you're an expert in epidemiology and therefore you're an expert in political forecasting or like you're in Taekwondo and therefore you're really good at organize, like giving life advice and how like you think that expertise in one tends to transfer into some sort of expertise in another with if you don't think about it very deeply. But then you, like what we're talking about here is it's clearly not going to transfer. Yeah, Valerie Aurora uh, called that out to me in, in a very clear way. Uh, specifically, uh, I, I took her Ally Skills workshop uh, a few years back, and she introduced herself, and she, she goes on to talking about this thing. And, and she mentioned later on, she used a term called technical privilege, and she pointed out like she used to be a Linux kernel developer, and she had mentioned that when introducing herself, because people pay more attention to what she says when she said, when she tells them that it had nothing to do with what she was talking about. And I'm sitting there in the room. I'm going, wow, that's absolutely right. Cause she said it. I was impressed. I paid more attention. I recognize that I'm staring across the room. I have, I have this beautiful poster. Uh, it's called cognitive bias codex basically categorizes the 150 or so cognitive biases that's in Wikipedia. And I, I always look across the room as if I can read it because it's across the room I can't see it. Um, but one of the cognitive biases that plays into that is the halo effect. That's, you know, you're good at one thing, therefore you're a good person and you're good at other things. Many of these are instances of the um, fundamental attribution error, which is thinking the things about myself that are good or characteristic of me, thinking the things about myself that are bad or accidents, and the opposite for other people. So if you do something good, it's because you got lucky, but if you do something bad, it's because you're a bad person. Whereas if I do something bad, it's because I got unlucky. But if I do something good, it's because I'm a good person. Yeah, that's one of my favorites because you can classify a lot of issues under that. Um, I'm, I'm looking for a universal theory of cognitive bias. The best I've come up with so far is thinking is hard. Yeah. Right, yeah. It's a way of avoiding thinking, right? And even the word bias is rough because a lot of these things either were adaptive or still are adaptive in certain circumstances. Absolutely. Just naming them cognitive biases indicates a bias towards Cartesian thinking again, like towards, towards the scientific uh, method uh. of Cartesian thinking, because there are places where human cognition do, don't match that up. I've heard people refer to them as heuristics, and I think that's maybe workable. They're shortcuts, right? They're shortcuts that our brain takes. And yeah, sometimes heuristic. those shortcuts help us, and sometimes they don't. That's really great. Heuristic shortcuts. Um, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to pull this in. I wrote an essay a few years back called Don't Call Them for t about Test Driven Development. Don't call it Test Driven Development. It's specifications of development. You write a specification. You can either match the specification or you don't match the code. You match the specification, don't match the specification. And it gives you a different relationship with the specification than if it's a test and it's a source of judgment and failure, et cetera, et cetera. That's great. Yeah, I like that terminology switch. It it makes it much more clear. Like the purpose of the the test is not to test, it's to specify. And if if you fail the specification, well, maybe maybe you're not doing the right. Maybe the code's not doing the right thing. Maybe the specification was wrong. But you know, it, it's just saying that they don't match. You're not wrong. Your code's not wrong or bad. You got you know you're not going to get a bad grade and, and get grounded for a week. <laughs> yeah, the other word failure there is loaded. Right. Yeah, I, I even I said it. I said fail a specification, which is a nonsense term. You don't need a specification. 
failure is loaded, but it also cannot be in a very simple way. A failure is a difference between what we observe and expect that we don't like. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> that we don't like. Oh, I, had a, uh, I had a hypnotist instructor say to me once, drugs don't have side effects. They have effects. Some of the effects we don't like. <laughs> yeah, so you know how people like to look at the software development lifecycle as this feedback system, right? Where, you know, working product comes out one end, you know, specifications go in one end, working product comes out the other end. But here are some side effects of that. Developers that hate their job, right? Are those side (laughs) effects or are those the system working as intended? Right. And so all of this is, all of this really, the broader thing is taking judgment out of the language. Like these, these are things that, and this is, this can go into any system we're talking about. Uh, software development, social, political, anything like, like, is it, or is it wrong or bad? Maybe like this is what's happening. Again, it depends on who's, who you ask. You know, there is both our individual sort of, you know, ethics normative frameworks and then there's a sort of a community, you know, of social norms, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it, it is different from team to team, even within the same organization. Yeah, and it's, I find it's a lot easier to talk about these things when there's less judgment involved uh, in the language. Yeah, I think that yeah, goes I, back to the fundamental attribution error, where like if there's judgment in the language, that judgment transfers to the people that are causing the things to be negatively judged. Yeah, and then, and then you know, if I judge the thing, then I judge the people who who are caused it or involved with it, uh, and then they get defensive, and then nothing changes. One of the biggest sort of transformations in my life came from the ability to love myself unconditionally. And when I love myself unconditionally, I can recognize the flaws and be okay with them and fix them. When I love myself conditionally based on, you know, I'm a good person, I do good things, et cetera, et cetera, then I can't see the flaws because that threatens my relationship with myself. Then I end up a bad person. There's also a lot of treating people the way we wish they would want to be treated. So, like, <laughs> for example, you are not your code, you know, egoless development, right? In fact, in a very real sense, you are your code. You wrote it. You're still attached to it. And so this idea that you can divorce your ego from it is not based on reality. It's based on how we wish people would be. Interesting. The, the pin tweet on, I have on Twitter for the past couple of years has been, you are whole, perfect, and complete. And that's true even if your code is buggy. <laughs> yeah, I think it's important to make the distinction, right? It's very easy to give feedback in a way that doesn't make the distinction between the person and the code and assumes that the person will make the distinction for you. How does one clearly make that distinction? I always mention Virginia Setier on every episode. That's that's the rule. Um, <laughs> so you know she was an uh, she was an NLP practitioner too, by the way. In my memory, I thought she was the one that they modeled. She was one of the people they modeled when developing NLP. That could be true. Okay. She is described as an NLP practitioner, but I mean, she started doing this stuff in the fifties. So yeah. So so the actual history um, is confusing, and I, and I get it wrong. But anyway, go on. No, no, you could be right. I'm just saying that she's known for, maybe he's known for it because it came out of, you know, studying her work. I'm not sure. That could be right, which would be cool. But yeah, yeah the, 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 story, the story with NLP is that there are a couple people 
uh, Richard Bandler. No, Bandler was, was the one developing it. Um, there's a couple therapists, and I think Virginia Satir was one, who were just mm-hmm. leaps and bounds more effective than other, other people. And then these yeah. Bandler and, and somebody else whose name Grinder. Grinder, thank you. I couldn't pronounce it, that's why I can't remember it. <laughs> Bandler and Grinder, they're like, why are these people so effective? And, and right, right, what right. they discovered is what we call NLP. Yeah, you can see videos of her. Like, there are DVDs you can buy of her sessions that she's, like, done publicly. And you can see some snippets on YouTube, and watching the way she talks is, is really incredible. And also the way she, like, uses her body, too. Anyway, so Virginia Satir talks about how the basis of, of all human interaction is built on an acknowledgement of the inherent value in ourselves and the other person. Like, you have to start there if you want to have a real human interaction. And so when I give feedback, and I know that some of the feedback I want to give is negative, I make sure to point out all of the things that I agree with or did well, or that I think they did well. So if I'm like, I don't like the way this method is named, I want to make sure I they know that I like what the method is doing. I just think it could have a better name or something like that. Wow. Can you repeat that principle again? That that sounded super important. <laughs> yeah, so the the basis of human interaction is acknowledging the inherent value in ourselves and the other person. You have to start there from this fundamental humans have value. That's the where things start. Okay. And so the precise example was uh was, you know, don't like don't like the way this method's named. Yeah. But to start out with I, I like what it's doing. I want to make sure they know that I see them as valuable. Even while I'm criticizing some specific thing. I definitely um I've definitely made a lot of my friends upset because I complain voraciously about particular media things. Um like, you know, everything that was wrong with this movie. <laughs> And they're like, why are you slacking this movie? We love this. Everybody loves this movie. This movie's great. I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't bother with a bad movie. <laughs> I don't talk about what's wrong with bad movies. That's a waste of everybody's time. <laughs> I think you have, you're on something really interesting there, but I'm also trying to think of how to balance that against the tendency when giving personal feedback from like as a manager or as a peer like trying to avoid the shit sandwich style where you say something awesome about them and then you tell them the negative thing and then you give them the awesome thing. And then it really loses the impact of that negative thing. So they don't really address it like straightforward. Because it's it's obviously not felt right. It's obviously just the thing to do. Right. I think the key is to make it really obvious that you're being authentic and not just using a formula. The key Mm. is authenticity. If you can fake that, you got it. (laughs) <laughs> right? I mean, and if you do the shit sandwich thing, you are being authentic, but what you're communicating is something different than what you think you're communicating. <laughs> That's great. Yes. <laughs> so, so really, the key to being a good manager is to care about people. Really. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They don't teach that in baseball. I haven't found another way to do it. You know, it's interesting you were talking about the, like, interacting with people the way you sort of wish they worked versus the way they actually work. And I think one of the early things I read when I was trying to learn how to be a manager was the idea that you want to treat them how they want to be treated, not how you want to be treated. And learning that there's a difference there is one of those, like, early steps that I I was glad I ran into. Because that golden rule thing has been around, you know, since I was five. And it's easy to sort of fall back on that. But that's not actually the best way to go. 
I've heard that called the platinum rule. Nice. It upsets me because, because, because I've been corrected with that. And I wanted to defend myself and say, well, no, the gold, uh, with the golden rule, I want to be treated the way I want to be treated. And so you want to be treated the way you want to be treated. So it's the same thing, right? And not a productive conversation, but just an instinct to defend myself. <laughs> a thing that I've noticed about myself looking back is that the times that I've become defensive have always been the times where there has been an opportunity for me to grow. And I'm doing myself a disservice if I can't find it. Yeah. It's really hard in the moment. Sometimes it happens like a month later, right? But that can expand to, to really all sort of strong, I'll use the word negative emotional reactions. If you have an emotional reaction that you don't like, there is a lesson there. Yeah. Uh, Virginia and Satir, again, points out that, you know, anger just happens, right? She actually calls anger a survival emotion. But anger just happens. It arises in our brain, you know, from pre-conscious effective parts of our brain, right? We don't control that. What we control is what we do once it gets there. Yeah. Uh, trauma therapist Ryan Suave, um, who I've worked with on a couple of things, he told me, I'm going to credit him, but he probably got it elsewhere. It's the thing elsewhere. You can feel your emotions. You should feel your emotions. You can't not feel your emotions. If you try not to feel your emotions, that you're going to have a bad time. Uh, but at the same time, you should not allow your emotions to control what you're doing. That's what some other part of you is for. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they should, uh, they should influence. They should, uh, you know, you should listen to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Take that in. It's, it's information. Do you know the, um, Mr. Rogers song, What Do You Do With The Mad That You Feel? Ooh, that sounds great. I haven't heard that. So he uh, went before a congressional committee on like funding for public broadcasts or some such thing. And they were trying to decide what to do with like $12 million. And he made this impassioned plea for public broadcasting and talked about what he did on his show. And he sang that song. And the committee chair, who's this like very New Jersey sort of a guy, was like, all right, fine. You got the $12 million. He sang that song in the congressional committee meeting? Yep. It's on YouTube. What a guy. <laughs> what a guy. <laughs> Virginia says, the problem is never the problem. How we cope is the problem. Ooh, yeah. That's great. Yeah, coping. <laughs> that's where it all unravels. <laughs> that a lot of the things that prevent us from being, like, from achieving our potential are survival rules, which are coping mechanisms we learned that are no longer serving us. Which sounds almost adjacent to, I think, Buddhist philosophy. It's like, it's not what's happening that's the problem. It's what you think about it. Or to quote Hamlet, I could be bounded in a mustard seed and count myself the king of infinite space. Yep. But I have bad dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Impressive. Have you read the, uh, the original, like, draft copy of Hamlet? It was garbage. Hamlet was like that. a pirate. It was so bad. So even Shakespeare, you know, had to, had to get it wrong before he got it right. I'm convinced that there's a good collection of bad Shakespeare. Actually, you know what? I take that back. There actually is a collection of bad Shakespeare plays. I performed them, at least one of them. <laughs> <laughs> there's some trash in his canon. But then I think I guess I can't just way. spend the rest of the show talking about Shakespeare now. That's disappointing. Oh, we can figure out a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs>
I will very quickly plug, there is a old um, series from the Royal Shakespeare Company called Playing Shakespeare. And it was originally on VHS, but I think you can find it on YouTube now. And it's like all of the actors at the time, which I guess was like the late 70s, early 80s, in their stable, which includes like Patrick Stewart, Dame Judi Dench, Ian McKellen, Helen Mirren, like the best Shakespeare actors of all time, discussing like how they interpret Shakespeare, how they play Shakespeare, like doing recital. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, I, I have a, I have so many pet peeves about Shakespeare performances. Like, first off, it's not highbrow. Shakespeare is dirty. It's crude. It's violent. Uh, and it's wonderful for all those reasons. And anyone who tries to pretend that it's high culture just ruins it. Also, why are people wearing Victorian dress? Uh, you know, Hamlet is set in 1400s Denmark. Why in the world would you be wearing Victorian dress? <laughs> One of the interesting things about Shakespeare, and then we can maybe move on, like, let's give this two more minutes, <laughs> is that when you find the really highbrow language, it's there for effect. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. there for a reason. So, like, there is a scene in The Merchant of Venice where there's this really highbrow language. It's like, like, seniors and rich burgers on the flood or the pageants of this and that. It's because the dude is sucking up to someone. <laughs> I also wanted to mention, um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Looking for Richard. It was uh, directed by Al Pacino and stars as him following the production of Richard III. But the documentary intersperses the actors discussing the parts and learning them and rehearsing along with the final productions, like moving back and forth to tell the whole story of the play. And so you get that really interesting sort of behind the scenes things being built up and the actors discussing how they're going to do what they're doing. In a di- like in the middle of while they're also doing it and, and you, you're seeing it develop over time. So it's a really interesting documentary. Awesome. We'd like to take a break in the show to let you know that today's show is sponsored by Strong DM. Managing your remote team as they work from home? Managing a gazillion SSH keys, database, passwords, and Kubernetes certs? Meet Strong DM. Manage and audit access to servers, databases, and Kubernetes clusters, no matter where your employees are. With StrongDM, easily extend your identity provider to manage infrastructure access, automate onboarding, offboarding, and moving people within roles. Grant temporary accesses that automatically expires to on-call teams. Admins get full auditability into anything anyone does, when they connect, what queries they run, what commands are typed. It's full visibility into everything. For SSH, RDP, and Kubernetes, that means video replays. For databases, it's a single unified query log across all database management systems. StrongDM is used by companies like Hearst, Peloton, Betterment, Greenhouse, and SoFi to manage access. It's more control and less hassle. StrongDM. Manage and audit remote access to infrastructure. Start your free 14-day trial today at strongdm.com sdt. So of the things you're working on right now, are, are there any things that you are particularly interested in or that you want to discuss here uh, that uh, you think would be relevant? Yes, actually, and it's good because it's the only project that, that is valuable to a broad audience and available to the public right now. Me and a business partner, uh, Rob Head, we're developing, we developed a product called Early Words, uh, which is a tool for people to help people do their morning pages. I was thinking about, you know, I said, make it easy. That's the sort of thing I want to talk about. 
and you know, just thinking about that, having, having sent that to, to you all, nobody needs a software tool to do morning pages. Piece of paper and a pencil or a pen do just fine. But so morning pages is like a journaling thing. Yeah, I suppose I should uh, probably go into that. It's a tool for creative recovery. It's called by Julia. Oh, no, I can't see her book from here. Julia Cameron, I think. <laughs> she wrote about it in a book called The Artist's Way, uh, which is all about recovering your artistic self, recovering yourself as an artist. And the, the principal tool is a daily practice called Morning Pages. The way she described it was three pages written first thing in the morning, longhand, um, just whatever it is that's on your mind. As such, it's an incredibly simple exercise, and it feels ridiculous. <laughs> but but something like two, two and a half pages in, things change, uh, and it changes the way you approach your day, it changes the way you approach your life, it changes your your, uh, your mental state. Uh, so Rob and I, we developed early words, early words.io as a tool to help people do that. And like I said, you know, you don't need a tool for this. You need a piece of paper and a, and a pencil. Weirdly enough, pencil is not a great interface for me. I just must have something to do with my age and my, my field of study. I can't write with a pencil or a pen for a very long time. Uh, I'm not good at it. It doesn't feel good. So I, like writing via keyboard gets more of what I think writing via longhand was to people 30 years ago or people who are not like me. But yeah, but like, you know, you can do this with a text editor. You can do it with, uh, you know, anywhere you can type things, really, or anywhere you can write things. Uh, so like, how do we make this easy for people? How do we make it so that it's easy to become a, a daily practice so that it's easy to keep flowing? And, and that's, that's really what this tool is. Um, it's not necessary. It's just make things easier. So when you decided to make this software, so like you're saying, you can just use a, a pen and a piece of paper. So there must have been something that made you think that this would be easier. Like, what is the thing about this that makes it easier? It's really the support. There's feedback in, like, you're, you're getting towards your goal. There's feedback in, like, you've done this on a daily basis. We're looking for other ways of, of doing that. Uh, there's also, like, when you're done, you're done. Uh, one of the things we did is when you've written your morning pages, they're done. There's no editing them. <laughs> There's no writing more. It's really guidance. It's it's setting up like what we were talking about with the ants. It's setting up an environment for people to travel along a particular path. Is this like a constraints or liberating sort of a thing? It's constraints or guiding at the very least. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I found yeah. a lot of benefit when I started doing morning pages because I had been journaling before that, but I would there was always an internal editor going like, oh, well, this paragraph should go down here and I should group these statements together so that they make more sense. And like, you know, just all that sort of machinery that you get, you know, doing things in high school and grade school about how to write. And like just realizing there's no going back, there's no editing, there's no like this has to look good for other people. Again, very liberating. Yeah, that's such a that's such a great lesson. Like, And that, that's something that's come up with me doing morning pages is trading to write without the editor. Writing is so difficult for me because I'm editing. And on the rare occasion when I'm doing my morning pages or there's something I wrote recently that I just out of luck <laughs> that I can write without self-editing, it just comes out in, in a cascade, in a, in a waterfall of good stuff. That needs editing, but it's good stuff. Editors are word cops. Pass it on. <laughs> I feel bad saying about that. I have an editor that I that I love very, very much. 
you have to kill the word cop in your mind. <laughs> yeah. De- defund, defund the word cop in your mind. Oh, yeah, defund. That's what I said. <laughs> Abolish word cops is what I'm saying. <laughs> so if I had read your bio, I would have found out that you actually um, have led theater productions. If you had read it, yes. My <laughs> bad. Uh, I uh, I was stage manager for the first run of a show called Pulp Shakespeare uh, and came on as a producer for later runs, uh, which which was really wonderful. Uh, Pulp Shakespeare was an absolutely amazing show. It's uh, it's Pulp Fiction as if written by Shakespeare, or wait, but there's a better way of saying it. Let me see. It's a production of the original the original version of Pulp Shakespeare, which uh, of Pulp Fiction, which was a Shakespeare play. But no, it really highlights a lot of what Shakespeare and Tarantino have, have in common, their their love of language, their love of violence. I guess that's it, really. That's so cool. What have you learned about tech from leading a theater production? Oh, man. I use this quote maybe once a month, and I've never... I think I did finally bothered to look up who said it, and now I've forgotten again. <laughs> Whatever. I won't attribute it. Sorry, sorry, guy. He said... I play the piano, but my instrument is the orchestra. You can do a lot more with an orchestra than you can with an instrument. I write amazing code. Uh, I'm really good at it. <laughs> I can do better leading a team than I can writing code. I'm a good actor. I'm a very good actor. That show would not happen with only me acting. Probably would be better off without me acting. That did happen without me acting. But, you know, it's much more powerful to have 13 actors, two, a stage manager, and three producers than it is to have a great actor. The things happen, things happen in teams. Teams are just so much more powerful and accomplish so much more than even the most amazing individuals. I've got another thing for that. Benjamin Zander, who uh, was the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic, has a thing that he said, which is that the conductor is the only person in the orchestra that doesn't make a sound. And conductors derive their power from empowering the people in the orchestra to make sound. I love that. Empowering the people in the orchestra to make sound. Like being in management, being a conductor, being a leader is an act of service. It's an act of service to people to allow them to, to do the amazing things that they do. And so when I showed up on, on, Friday night with the two muffins that they that they use as props to eat on stage. It's a silly thing. All it took was going to the store and spending five bucks on a muffin and knowing to do that. But it allowed the actors who were on stage who knew, who like had a scene where they're eating, it allowed them to do the thing that they do and do it a lot better. And so I, I think that a lot of the job of management is to create environments in which people can do the right stuff. And do it easily. Yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, creating the environment for people to do the things you need to be done. I think of employment in the same way, right? There's a saying among, among actors, uh, we act for free. We're paid to wait. And it's true. Like, actors love acting. We do it all the time. But, you know, get an environment where that ends up in a movie, that's a whole lot of work. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. And so the same about engineers. Like, I, software engineers love to write code. I love to write code. Putting me in a place where that code will produce something valuable that will generate, you know, economic and other sorts of wealth in the world. That's a thing. Or, or at the very least, uh, setting me up so that I can pay my rent and don't have to worry about it so I can spend my time writing code. (laughs) I'm tempted to say that I write code for free. I'm paid to use Jira. 
<laughs> well, I, I hope you paid well. I mean, there's a whole thing about how when the thing you love is making someone else rich. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we we could go we can go deep into that. One of the great things about early words is that it's a two person project. We have equal ownership. It's something we're doing for ourselves. I had this great conversation with I'm going to call him a socialist. I don't know if he would self identify this way, but, <laughs> but there's very there's very much a lot of exploitation in the labor market. Like I'm going to pay you a bunch of money to make me really rich. Uh, you're not you're not getting the value out of what you're doing, and that's typically. That's how the labor market largely works. And it largely works because uh, people with capital have more power than people with labor. But it doesn't have to be that way. A labor market doesn't have to be that way. One of the things I love about the jobs that I've loved is that they allowed me to do things that I couldn't do otherwise. They created an environment where, like, even though I wasn't capturing the full value of what I'm producing, I the value of what I was producing was a lot more than it would be on my own. You know, I, I've been a, I've been a startup founder. I've been a software engineer. I've been a product manager, and I so and I know that as an engineer, you know, the code I write has great value, but it has great value because of the marketers, because of the product manager, because of the business people. <laughs> That's a silly term, business people. Um, and so it has more value because of the things that they contribute. So the fact that I don't get to capture all of that value does not bother me. It's not a bad thing. It's still better than the times I spent on my own working for myself, generating far less value, even though I got to capture it all. Uh, excuse me, they prefer to be called people who business. <laughs> <laughs> people first language, yes. Business person is such an awful, awful term. Like what is what does that mean? So I have to ask you, what is ontological coaching? Yeah, I use the phrase ontological coaching precisely to generate that question. And partly because uh, I have a visceral reaction to the phrase life coaching. And also because life coaching is, is even if without my visceral reaction, it's far too specific. So ontology is the study of being, which is not an informative statement in and of itself. It's more of a Greek definition. But ontological coaching, as I was taught it, as I learned it, uh, in my training, is a shift on how we approach the things we want. There's a natural way to think like, oh, I want, I want to be fit. So I, so I work out and then I'll be fit. I want to be a pianist. So I sit down at the piano and I practice the piano and then I'll be a pianist. And it's focusing on what you want to have and then saying, what do I need to do to get what I want to have? Uh, if you change it, if you come from an ontological perspective, it's a focus on what you're being. So you think about, you know, who do I, who do I get to be such that I'll do the things that, that'll make, that'll have the things I want. This comes up strongly in relationships. Uh, you think about, you know, I want to have these types of intimate relationships and there's a whole, please, let's not get into this, <laughs> but, they, but there's a whole industry of like how to get to particular, uh, intimate relationships you want. And if you go the other way, like, okay, well, who do I want to be? And then those things just naturally happen. And so really it's helping people shift into that, guiding them through that process and learning that. I'm realizing that I probably want to start calling myself an epistemic coach now. Epistemic. Is that definitions? No. Knowledge. Knowledge. I like it. What even is knowledge? Yes. <laughs> How do we know things? 
It's so funny. Uh, there's there's a there's a lot of people who feel so strongly about the scientific method and the the they have kind of <laughs> I call I mean it really is a religious connection to the scientific method. And yeah. you know, have you have you ever looked at why the scientific method is useful? What makes you think it's useful? Have you ever examined that? Yes. <laughs> you have because you're an epistemologist. Okay, whatever that word would be. <laughs> It depends on who you ask, in fact, and in which in which decade you ask, right? But the sort of modern idea is that the scientific method tells us what is real, or at least what we have sufficient reason to believe is real, through, it used to be falsification, and before that it was verification. I have no idea what the kids are doing these days. <laughs> I, the one I was looking for was uh, epistemologist or something. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like so. So you, you start with a presumption of a Cartesian duality. There's an external world, and there are observers of that external world, uh, and there's a shared external reality, uh, shared external objective reality. And you go, okay, what are things we can identify about that reality? But there, there's an assumption of consistency. Uh, that, you know, and then there's something of external reality, and not, none of the scientific method is scientifically testable. There's nothing supporting it. I'm not coming out against the scientific method, just for the record. <laughs> I'm just saying there's nothing supporting it. The, the only thing supporting it is a shared belief that it works. <laughs> well, that's very unscientific. So, I mean, this is the, the fundamental problem with science, right? It's all ultimately based on human belief. There's no way around it. I mean, is that a problem? That's, you know, it's something to no, recognize worked, and understand. It has worked pretty well, but it, it does indicate that people who think that the scientific message is about discovering objective truths are misguided. Yeah. Still useful. I'm still in favor of it. You know, I have to say that on the record. People think you're crazy, you know. <laughs> so what Sidney Decker loves to point out is that the scientific method is great for learning things, but it can't tell you what to learn. Oh, I'm so good. Or why. Yeah, it can't tell you why you value the things you value. It can tell you what to do once you've decided to value something. So then, how do you value things? <laughs> Sorry, we're, we're we're really we're really heading to like the the roots of things. That path leads to crazy things. Like I think before I am. So, <laughs> so one of the things that happens on this show is we see how long it takes for me to name drop Wittgenstein, um, <laughs> because. We're, we're starting to hit philosophical bedrock now. <laughs> um, there's philosophical bedrock? Maybe. This is a, there's a game. Oh, God. Somebody said, like, pick a Wikipedia page at random, click on the first non-trivial link, and, <laughs> and like, what, five steps to get to philosophy? Yeah, it's true. Works every time. Which, you know, makes me not feel so bad about the highest levels of education being a doctorate in philosophy. I feel like we have very slightly come off the rails here. <laughs> uh, I don't know what the rails were, so, not in a bad so I'm okay way. with that. <laughs> not in a bad way. I I have a tendency to do this in every discussion, so I sometimes have to. Uh, I'm trying to not say rein myself in because that's oh, you know. <laughs> all right, rain, John. What are the rails here? What 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 is greater than code about? There aren't really rails, but so greater than code is about the hypothesis that the socio side of the socio-technical system that we inhabit is more important than the technical side. 
oh, wow, we hit that pretty hard. I'm proud of us. So there are things that are greater than code, is the hypothesis. Probably a good time to jump into reflections at this point. Hey! I'm having trouble formulating a reflection, though, just despite that. <laughs> like, there are a lot of really good like threads to pull on, but I don't have a really cogent like place to put that. Which is an interesting reflection in and of itself. It's true. It's true. Probably bears re-listening to this episode in a couple of weeks and seeing what comes back out at me. Um, one of the things that I'm less happy about uh, in this conversation is, is that we didn't find those and dig into them. We, we uh, and we veered away from the practical at, at the first opportunity we had. Uh, but you know, I did it because, well, I enjoy it. <laughs> I, I was your accomplice there, so don't get to do that very often. So, uh, so I, I jump on the opportunity. Well, you'll just have to come back on the show, uh, and we'll do the other conversation. One of the things about being part of a legislative body is learning Robert's Rules of Order. And it, it seems like a bunch of silly rules. There mostly is. But the principle is we're doing something. A decision will be made. And if we're not heading towards that decision, we're not, we're not, we're off the rails. This is not, you know, there's nothing that we can do. There's nothing you can do under Robert's Rules of Order that is not leading to an actual action by that body. So, yeah. So I, I love that concept of like, what precisely are we going to do and having that as a focus for any conversation or any, uh, any, any sort of, yeah, any sort of conversation, which is not what we did here at all. Uh, <laughs> uh, which is, you know, and, and the conversation reflects that. And I love this too. Well, I won't do this with most people. So teleology is, you know, the idea that things have goals and purpose, right? I think it's interesting to think about that in connection with like discourse conversations. Does every conversation have a goal? Is it necessary? Like, is it good for some conversations to not have goals? I think it's absolutely good for some conversations to not have goals. I think most conversations, people don't know what their goals are. And I think it's vitally important for some conversations to have very clear goals. I guess the question is, what are you trying to accomplish? So it's like, you can't avoid discussions of purpose it seems like when you talk about humans what are you trying to accomplish is the uh is the sentence i use most as a product manager <laughs> one of the challenges for me and maybe this will be my reflection is that it's very hard to translate theory into practice so that's literally what praxis is right praxis is the translation of theory into practice in the academic community, you can find papers that talk about the gap between research and practitioners, researchers and practitioners. And so you have all these people thinking all these thoughts, but how do you connect those people doing the thinking with the people that are doing the work? And one way, I think, is to actually recognize that the people who are doing the work are also doing a lot of thinking. <laughs> the difference between theory and practice is that in theory, there isn't a difference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yep. Love that one. I think we do, like, the folks who are doing the work a discredit when we assume that they don't get the theory. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And even if they don't, even if they can't articulate it or don't, even if they can't articulate it, they know the theory better because they're doing it. Yeah, it's embodied. Embodied, thank you. Hey, we did it. It actually ties in with an article I was reading literally this morning about uh, tacit knowledge um, and, and how... You know, teaching us 
so often assumes that there is a verbal description that transfer knowledge from one brain to another brain and that, that there is no tacit that's knowledge. Not how, that's not how it works. That's not how, that's not how knowledge works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and how, like, knowing that tacit knowledge is there and being able to find the borders of where it exists in a field allow you to then say, okay, well, how do we get at that? Whereas if you don't acknowledge it, then you're just going to drive around it and assume that you can transfer everything. And, and, and I think that ties in directly with that embodiment of practice, of, of the theory in practice, where like so much of that is not even necessarily able to be interrogated like cognitively. Yeah, there's so much focus and importance placed on things that can be languaged, things that can be and, and cognitively introspective. And that is not the important stuff. Our, our cognition, our rational minds are a tiny, tiny piece of what we are and what we're capable of and uh, not worthy of so much focus. Like before, I think our reflections have gone off the rails a little bit. <laughs> no, we're, we're good. We're good. Um, I'm enjoying this. So. Damien, is there something that you'd like our listeners to sort of take away from this or to keep thinking about? The first phrase that comes to mind is life is hard. And I hate that phrase because it implies a sort of resolve towards suffering, which is not at all what I mean. Uh, what I mean is that things are difficult and complicated and tough to understand. I think our conversation reflects that in that we kept going we kept going to such deep fundamental issues that have no bedrock. Doesn't matter what topic you're, you're talking about. To go back to, to the Wikipedia exercise, doesn't matter what topic you're talking about. If you get into it deeply, you end up in philosophy, and in philosophy, there's and then, and then you end up with nothing. There's a void underneath that. Um, uh, so, so really, really, what I mean when I say life is hard, what I mean is the things we're doing whether it's writing a web app or writing specification documents or, or building a business or building a product, the things we're doing are in environments, are in and of themselves in an environment that is large and complicated and worthy of a lot of study and effort. And we're going to, like, you're going to have some confusion, some difficulty. There are things that you will never know. There are things that that you want to understand. There are things that contradict other things that are also true. And all of that investigation is enjoyable, like we've done today, and important and worthy. And that's what I mean when I say life is hard. And, that's, and I think that's that's the takeaway I want out of out of this. So make everything you can easy. That's the other side of it. I love that. One thing that occurred to me while you were saying that is Woods' Law of Fluency, which is expertise hides the effort in work. So... People making things look easy can do that because of their expertise. Doesn't mean the things will be easy for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that ties into that whole unconscious competence uh, level of, of, of task acquisition where you don't even realize all the stuff you're doing. But one of the things that happens is that when people make things look easy, that work is devalued. Hmm. You know, magicians have this problem. And they have, and they have strategies for it. And maybe that, maybe those are strategies we, we need to learn. <laughs> yeah. I, I've heard something like, you know, a magician puts a ton of effort into making some, making it look like nothing happened or mm -hmm. something like that. 
Yeah, but like if if you if you are a bad magician like I am, you know I know I know a few card slights, and you discover you know, I I've, I've mastered a couple cards. Well, not mastered. I've I've I'm effective with a couple card slights, and you discover that the slight does not make the trick. Nobody's interested. Nobody values like something happening. You didn't see it happen. Nobody cares. It's everything else around it that what is what gives that value. And pattern is, is actually a magician's term. It's coming from that Cartesian sciences engineer left brain, or right brain, whatever side of the brain it was, sort of thing where it's like, well, no, the actual thing was important. And you tend to devalue the, the part around it that gives it, that allows other people to recognize its value and its importance and to think highly of it. Yeah, that reminds me of a story um, Penn Gillette was talking about early in his career. He spent I know, a couple of years living in his car, just driving around doing street magic, uh, but making lots and lots of money doing it. And and the routine he had was 90% patter, where like l- literally 90% of the time would be spent building up the crowd in such a way that he could do his little five-minute thing and everyone would be really excited about it. And there'd be a massive crowd that could then pay him lots of money. But like it was a five-minute act that like if he hadn't mm-hmm. done that, wouldn't have generated any interest. Yeah, yeah. Generating the interest is is an important part. The slide is just it's just a, a small tool you use. Same with the code, right? Uh, the code is is not the important part. The the environments around it, the product, the the who it, who it helps, who it serves, uh, the people paying for it, et cetera, et cetera. That's all that stuff that that we're taught to devalue as engineers and, and as and as scientists. Like that's really what's important. And we're doing a terrible job of wrapping up. Do you want to just, like, come back again? Oh, of course I want to come back again. Uh, does that mean we don't have to wrap this up? I just We just hang up and, and we'd be done? Works for me. <laughs> to be continued. All right. This, this was really fun. Yeah, thank you for doing it. Yeah, it was, this was an awesome conversation. I am required by law to say that if you enjoyed this conversation and you want to have more like them, you can join our Slack by becoming a Patreon supporter for as little as one whole dollar, 100 cents. And all of the uh, panelists and also a lot of the guests are there too. And also we have a wonderful supportive community who care for each other. It's cool. You can, you can do that if you want. That sounds wonderful. We can talk to people. They can talk to people like, like you and, and do that. Indeed. Yeah. All of our uh, guests are also invited, so you can, Damien, you can also come and say hi to people. Well, I will be there. Yay. <laughs>